as we um, as we continue in our uh, in our all for one series, we're working through this letter from Paul to the church at Ephesus and the surrounding churches. the The church is made up primarily in this area at this time of Gentiles, non-Jewish believers. There are Jews among them. Paul is a Jew himself. And as he is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, he has in mind the fact that, that the, the, the primary target audience here is those non-Jewish, those Gentile believers. And there is a problem that they have in themselves in that they've spent their entire life being seen, being treated, and perhaps even seeing themselves as outsiders to God's people. The Jews looked down upon the Gentiles as those who were apart from God. And to an extent, they had reason for that. They knew that God had called Israel, the Jews, to be his own children, to be his own people. They had the law of God. They had the prophets of God. They had the temple where they would go and worship God according to the scriptures. The Gentiles didn't have that. Now in Ephesus they had a temple, but it wasn't a Jewish temple. It was a temple to the goddess Artemis, or you may know her by her Roman name, Diana. And when I say her, She's not real. I'm just clarifying. But when they thought of the temple, they were thinking of a pagan temple primarily. Those Jews among them would have a very specific picture of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, the temple to the one true living God. But even those Gentiles who knew, Paul's Jewish, he's writing this to us, we've been hearing this gospel, we've been receiving this message of this Jewish Messiah, and we recognize who God is. They've learned in the synagogue, and now they've learned apart from the synagogue after they were rejected there. Now, they're still, like the rest of us, colored by their culture. The way they were raised, what they see every day, the things that are constantly bombarding them in their society, that's going to be prominent in their minds. So when they think of temple, they're thinking of Artemis. Now, Ephesus was arguably the second greatest city in the Roman Empire at this time. It was certainly one of them. It was a major, major crossroads here for trades. This city of commerce and prosperity was a cosmopolitan city. And not only that, it was renowned for its great, mighty temple. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And in this incredible temple to Artemis, they had all of the beauty the world could offer, all the opulence and wealth that the world could offer. They had an industry based on building, uh, building idols and trinkets that they could use in worship. There was a big, booming religious business. The gospel of Christ had created some problems for that, which actually in the book of Acts led to a riot. You can find that in Acts 19. But as we're looking here today, Paul has come past this. He has now left Ephesus where he was for three years. And he is, uh, as, as best we understand it, he is imprisoned in Rome under house arrest. And he's writing back to this church that has grown and expanded. And in a 
a cosmopolitan area like that, you can know there's a high turnover of people. And the gospel is spreading. And it's spreading not just through Ephesus, but throughout the surrounding area to other churches and other towns. And this letter would have been passed among them. Now, Paul's letter to the Ephesians is all about reconciliation. There's an unmistakable theme of oneness in Christ. We can't miss it. The theme of the book as we have worked through it is God's great purpose is to bring all things together under His kingdom rule in Jesus Christ. In other words, God is reconciling all things to Himself in Christ. You really can't miss that as you go through the letter. And I would encourage you, as I have before, to read this letter entirely every week as we're going through this series. The more times you read it, the clearer it will become. And the more you know it, the less you have to rely on some old guy standing up here at a pulpit telling you what to think. You don't ever want to fall into that trap. When you start having preachers tell you what to think, rather than help you understand how to work through this for yourself, you get in a very dangerous place. We need to see God's Word, not human opinion. So as you read through this, I would encourage you to read it, if at all possible, in one setting. It takes about 10 to 15 minutes, even for me, and I'm pretty slow. So as you read through this like you would your own letters, pour over it. Understand, this is personal. Paul is communicating his heart. And as he does so, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. So he's actually communicating God's heart. Paul's letter, as I said, is about reconciliation. Now notice as we work through this how Paul builds this theme. We looked at chapter 1, and in the first section of chapter 1, we saw that God's glory is displayed in His grace toward us in Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He's chosen us. He's predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, holy and blameless. He has adopted us. Think about that for just a second. All of those blessings that God has chosen you for adoption, out of all humanity, He said, you are mine. Not only did He say, you are mine, but He set His affection on you in such a way as to make you co-heirs with Christ. If you are in Christ, you are co-heirs with Christ. In other words, everything that Christ receives as the only begotten Son of God, believers receive as the adopted sons and daughters of God. That's the meaning of that phrase. It's a powerful reality, but God, God displays His glory in His grace toward us in Christ. We recognized as we kind of sat there and looked at what that means in this chosen and secure idea, we see that our destiny in Christ is as settled as God's sovereignty. And all that God does to give life to His people, He does in Christ. Not because of your good works, not because of your special ability to trust Him, or because you're somehow better than somebody else. He does it in Christ. So if it's in Christ and not in you, you don't have to fear blowing it. Because you didn't earn it in the first place. 
God is the doer. All that He does to give life to His people, He does in Christ. And it's only in the context of the church that we can fully know and experience God. He intended, designed, ordained that He would manifest Himself in the gathering, in the togetherness of His body. Not just individual Lone Ranger believers, me and Jesus got our own thing going, but we have the church together, as God has said, my people, as a family, as a household, is where I will make myself known. That's His purpose. Last week in the first half of chapter 2, we saw that God gives us life by His grace that we might give our lives for His glory. And today, we see Paul focus on the expression of that purpose in the church. The core reality we see in the second half of chapter 2 is this. The glory of God is displayed in the unity of His people in Christ. Let me say that again. I want to make sure you get it. The glory of God is displayed in the unity of His people in Christ. Now, we hear that term unity a lot. Right? If anybody remembers the, the book or the movie Animal Farm, there's a lot of push. There's a lot of push in Orwell's picture there of Stalinist Russia for us to see this call to unity that wasn't true unity. There was a uniformity, but there wasn't a unity. That's not what we're called to in Christ. Politicians talk about unity a lot, but they seldom deliver. In fact, very often, even the very term unity can be used to divide. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about politics. We're not talking about everybody rooting for the same team, go Bears. But we're, what we are talking about is the reality that all of us together, doesn't matter what your skin color is, doesn't matter what nation you're from, what your economic background is, what language you speak, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're slave or free, none of that matters. What matters is all of us together are dead in Christ in ourselves, are dead in sin in ourselves, and we are reconciled to Christ by grace. All of us. The same grace. There is no other option. So either we receive that grace by trusting God, saying, Lord, I'm yours. I'm going to stop fighting you. I surrender. I believe what you say, and I'm going to, to let you do whatever you want to do in me. Either that, or we remain dead in ourselves. Pretty simple choice. So all of the other divisions that we look at are absolutely meaningless. Think about that as we watch the news, as you get on your social media, as you get angry with that person next door who has a different perspective from you on whatever it might be. When you think of those people who don't like pizza, whatever it is, whatever divides you, keep in mind this in itself is all destined to end when you die. 
but everything for everyone will continue in one way or another after you die. It'll either be with Christ in glory or separated from God for eternity, separated from the giver of life and all that that implies. As we move forward in this, in today's passage, we're, we're really going to see main, three main movements as Paul develops his core reality. All right, So there are three, you might see that there are four points there. You're going to see first isolation, then we're going to look at reconciliation, and what I'm going to call construction. So as we work through these three movements that, that Paul puts together, isolation in the first couple of verses, reconciliation in verses 13 to 18, and this uh, what we'll call construction for today, the building of the church in verses 19 to 22, we'll see in these movements that the glory of God is displayed in the unity of His people in Christ. Then we'll We'll wrap this up, we'll close it out with a, a discussion of the communion we have in Christ, what we share together. And then, following the sermon, we'll illustrate that with our monthly remembrance celebration. So, with that, let's get started. Let's talk about isolation. Verses 11 and 12 demonstrate our isolation. First, notice this. In ourselves, we are separated from God and one another. In ourselves, we are separated from God and one another. Paul is addressing this directly to the Gentiles because that's the majority of the church that he's dealing with. And he throws in these references to Jewish believers as well because they are present. While they are not the majority and they are not the focus, they are present. And they need to understand this as well. So he says, <clears throat> therefore, excuse me, remember that formerly before you were in Christ... He says, formerly, that's what he's talking about, right? Not before Nero became emperor or before you moved to Ephesus, or not even before you started coming to church at Ephesus. Before you put your faith in Christ, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision. Now, that idea of circumcision for the Jewish person, was the sign of the covenant. All right? So that was the distinction, is whether that, that act of covenant, that symbol of the covenant, had taken place. And Paul specifies that's the, that's the cutting of the flesh by humans. Right? Elsewhere, he talks about the circumcision of the heart. What God has actually called us to is not just a circumcision of the flesh, but a circumcision of the heart as we surrender ourselves to Him. So he says here, Gentile folks, you guys who are outside of the people of God, <clears throat> and, and it's important that he says before you were in Christ, remember that at that time, because before you were in Christ, this division mattered. Remember that at that time, you were separate from Christ. You weren't in Him yet. You were excluded from citizen, citizenship in Israel. That was recognized as the people of God, and he'll clarify in Romans and elsewhere that it's not just about your natural citizenship in Israel. Not everyone who comes from Abraham's line belongs to Abraham's faith. There's a distinction. But he says you were, you were excluded at that time. You weren't a part of it. You weren't citizens. 
In fact, you were foreigners not only to Israel, but to the very covenants of the promise that God gave to Israel. Apart from Christ, and apart from being a part of Israel, you were outside of any kind of real hope, and you were without God in the world. That's a pretty significant thing. In ourselves, we're separated from God and from one another. Pardon me, I want to have you turn real quickly to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Why are we going to Genesis? If you were here with us last week, you may, have, you may remember that we talked about the first part of chapter 2 here, reversing Genesis chapter 3, reversing the, the separation, the death that comes to us in Adam because we all sin in Adam. We all inherit that sin and we all have sin that we choose in our actions. In Genesis chapter 11, we've moved past that, and we see today that in Christ, God reverses, He undoes what happens in Genesis chapter 11. You may be familiar with the story, starting with verse 1. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. Think about how unifying that is. That's what they've been striving to do with the European Union, is to unify Europe. So you have one currency, you have one general government that oversees the individual governments. There's even, uh, there, there are talks of various people saying, boy, if we could just have one language, it's never going to happen. But if that, if that could, could be the case, think of how unified we could be. We are a global community. That's what they're doing here, except for understand something very clearly. They are unifying for the sake of their own glory. And ultimately, they're unifying against God. Notice what happens. One one language, common speech. As people moved eastward, out from Eden, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. God had commanded them to go and fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But they go and they gathered and they formed this city together. And they said to each other in verse 3, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. We'll talk a little later about the significance of using brick instead of stone when we consider the altar that God called His people to build. Then they said, Come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. We'll have great technology. So that we may, notice this, make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth, which incidentally was God's command for them. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they've begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth. God accomplished what he intended in the first place. And they stopped building the city. That's why it's called Babel, which sounds like the Hebrew for confusion. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. 
From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the earth. Now, in, in this moment, humanity united. Notice our second point here. Unity apart from God is unity against God. In ourselves we're separated from God and one another, but notice that unity apart from God is unity against God. We have a lot of calls for unity in our world, that we should join together, that we should uh, you know, power up, we should build a tower, figuratively speaking, because we don't need God. Think of how strong we are as humans. We can do anything. You can do anything you want if you just put your mind to it. And it sounds great, except for it's not. Because this uniting together in our own strength is apart from God, and our creation was for the purpose of being in relationship with God to give Him glory. We exist for that reason. When we unite to do our thing instead of God's thing, when we unite in our own human understanding, rather than leaning on Him, all of the good deeds we might try to do, all of the good things we might accomplish, are actually an affront to God. God wants the good things done, and God gets the good things done, but not by us banding together apart from Him. When we unite apart from God, we are uniting against God. That's what happens in chapter 11. Notice in chapter 12, turn the page real quickly. Not, not real quickly, you might tear it. Just take your time, turn the page. <clears throat> chapter 12, starting with verse 1. We see in, this, in these first few verses of chapter 12, what's known as the Abrahamic covenant. God makes a covenant with Abraham. But notice in this, there's a foreshadowing of what we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to see a foreshadowing here of Christ, the seed of Abraham, who will bless the world. Starting with verse 1, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Here's the covenant promise that God makes to Abraham. Still Abram at this time. He'll change his name later. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. Now, all of the Jewish folks in the first century knew this. The Jewish folks in Ephesus knew this. This is why the Gentiles weren't a part of it. They didn't have this promise. They didn't belong to Abraham. But we have a tendency then to overlook the last portion here of what God says to Abram. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. Now, this seems like a small thing until we start to look at the entire Bible together. And we connect the dots through the covenants that God makes and His call to Israel not only to be His people, but, be, but to be a light to the Gentiles. The promise for Abraham, check this out now, wasn't for Abraham. He's promising to make this great nation, to make his name great and to bless him, but the purpose of it is to bless the world, all of the world, all peoples, through him. 
Now, Abram doesn't get outside of the Middle East. So how does that happen? It happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ, who comes from Abraham's seed. He is the promised seed. He's the serpent crusher promised in Genesis 3 when God says, one will come who will crush the serpent's head. Jesus is the hope of the world. Let's go back to Ephesians 2. In ourselves, we're separated from God and one another. Unity apart from God is unity against God. And we see, <clears throat> we see here in uh, verses 11 and 12 this separation that we have. Sin isolates and separates, though it may promise unity. Sin isolates and separates, though it may promise unity. We hear a lot of promises of unity. There was a promise of unity here in Genesis 11. Let's band together. Look at what we can accomplish when we put our heads together. When we stop fighting and we all get on the same page and we move forward. But God says, if you're going to do this apart from me, if you're going to do this contrary to the purpose for which I created you, all of your striving for unity is going to become division. And he scatters them. And he confuses their language. We when we unite apart from God, we seek a belongingness. We seek unity. We want to fit in with the crowd. We want to be like the rest of the world. Israel kept doing that over and over. God, give us a king. We want to be like everybody else. God said, I'm your king, and you're not supposed to be like everybody else. I called you apart from them to be separate, to be set apart for me. Yeah, but God, we want a king. But I'm your king. But God, you're not like that. We want that kind of king. We want to be like everybody else. Okay. You get what you choose. But let me tell you now, the Lord says, you're not going to like it because he's going to tax you. And he's going to conscript your sons into the army. He's going to send your sons into battle. And you're going to suffer under this king that you want. God gives us a true unity. All that we try to do on our, in our own way, in our own strength, we are seeking a unity that God gave us in the beginning, but sin broke it down. Sin separated us from God and separated us from each other. You don't have to turn to Genesis chapter 3, but sometime you can do that for your homework. After the sin occurs... <coughs> Adam and Eve in this perfect garden, everything is wonderful. They can do anything they want, eat anything they want, except for this one tree. Don't do that. And they do. And while they had perfect relationships, they were, as the text says, naked and unashamed. They were, there was no barrier between them. There was nothing to hide. There was no guilt. There was no reason for them to be separated. But the moment that sin occurs, you know what the first thing is that happens? Adam blames Eve. They hide from God. They're, they're ashamed. They're separated from him. And Adam blames Eve. They're separated from one another. And of course, she blames the snake. But sin brought isolation and separation, not only from God, but from one another. And it's been doing that ever since. 
isolation. Notice also, Paul, in this second movement, in verses 13 to 18, we see the picture of reconciliation. We're isolated, we're separated from God. But then there's an unfortunate paragraph break. Well, it's a, the paragraph break is not in the Greek. That's something that the editors added in the English translation. But in the NIV, it breaks after 13. I would break it before but either way, it's a matter of taste. Notice the thought picks up here. But now, you're separated, you're isolated, you're, you're, you're broken apart, you're excluded, you're outsiders. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Sin separates Christ reconciles. The grace of God makes us one in Him by making us one with Him. You were far away. But now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. 16, or 14, I'm sorry. For He Himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. i got to stop here because we don't see the divisions the same way they do. Here, the primary division that they are seeing is between Jew and Gentile. Now, how many of you recognize they had just as many skin color and ethnic variations then as we do now? But that wasn't the primary concern. The primary concern was, are you insiders with God or outsiders with God? The, all the other differences were there, but they were not as prominent. They weren't significant to them. doesn't mean people didn't feel them, but sin divides. When we're in Christ, all those sin divisions, they don't matter anymore. We want to throw that away. So when Paul is talking to them here, he's saying, look, this, this division that you had now has been changed so there are only two groups, insiders and outsiders, but now there aren't even two groups when you're in Christ because who, if you were an outsider or you were an insider, now you're only family together in Him. If you're in Christ, then you're joined. You're together. So the only thing that really matters is are you dead or are you alive? Notice this, in Christ, we are reconciled to God and one another. In Christ, we are reconciled to God and one another. You were far away, you've brought, been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh, what does it mean that he set aside or abolished? It means he fulfilled everything that the law was meant to do. Jesus himself said, not one part of this is ever going to pass away till it does all that it was sent to do. And in Christ, the law is utterly fulfilled. And so all of the regulations of the Jewish law, all of those commands... All of the ceremonial aspects of that are caught up in Christ. And as he died in our place, he being the perfect sacrifice, abolished. He did away with all that was unique to the worship in Israel. 
So that now, his purpose, he says here in, in verse 15, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. What we're seeing here is the fulfillment of what God said to Abraham in Genesis 12. I'm going to bless all peoples through you. I'm going to, I'm going to have this, this Jewish nation, this, this Hebrew nation that comes through you, but that's not the end of it. That's the beginning of it. So that through Israel, the whole world, all the Gentiles could see the truth, the beauty, the light of who God is. But just like we tend to do, they got isolated. They started thinking, we're, we're the special people. Rather than, we are the ambassadors. We're here not just to get from God, but we are here to display God for the world. Too often we do that in church. We who call ourselves Christians are content to just get from God. That's not what we're here for. In Christ, we're reconciled to God and one another. He brought us together through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near. Notice being near didn't make them reconciled to God. Being near gave them every advantage. They had the law, they had the prophets, they knew the truth. But if they didn't live by that faith, then they were still dead in sin. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through Him, through Christ, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. It doesn't matter whether you were Jewish or Gentile. If we're going to extend this today, it doesn't matter whether you grew up in the church learning all of the things or whether you grew up so far apart that you never even heard of Christ. If you grew up in the, in the jungles of Africa and no one ever told you about Christ, although I would say the church in Africa may be stronger than the church here today. As we all come to Him, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. No one, no one has access to God any other way but by trusting what Jesus did to pay our penalty, to move us from death to life. In Christ, we're reconciled to God and one another. Reconciliation to God unites our purpose to His purpose. Reconciliation to God unites our purpose to His purpose. The problem that we had in Genesis 11 was we were united, humanity, for our purpose. And it kept us at odds with God's purpose. But when we come to Christ, when we receive this grace, we can't do it with a haughty heart. You can't receive grace without humility. It's the nature of receiving grace. When we recognize we owe, it, we owe a debt we cannot pay, and we receive that substitutionary payment for that debt. 
can't act like it's owed to you. You're the one that owes. God, if I may, don't owe you nothing. Here's the fact. When we come to Him and we are humbled before Him, the only thing that matters is for us then to surrender ourselves to Him. You don't have to turn to Romans chapter 12 just yet. We will in a little while. But in Romans chapter 12, the first verse, Paul says, in light of God's mercy, in view of everything that He's done for us, the only logical, reasonable response is to make yourself a living sacrifice. Not, not kill yourself, but make your life a sacrifice. Put yourself on the altar for Him. He died for you. The only logical response is to live for Him. And he goes on to say, if you do this, then you will know what God's will is. God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. You want to know how to live life? Give yourself to Christ. Surrender to Him. Put yourself in His hands. Get your mind on His purpose. And when your mind is on His purpose, and my mind is on His purpose, and everybody in this church's mind is on God's purpose, then we will be united in His purpose. My will now joyfully conforms to the will of God. That's what happens when we're reconciled to Him by grace in Jesus Christ. So we see the, this first movement, this isolation. You're separated. That's who you were. Apart from Christ, every single one of us stuck, dead in sin. But in Christ, we are brought near. We are reconciled to God. He is in Christ reconciling all things to Himself. In fact, that's the purpose of this letter. He says at the end of chapter 1 that God has placed all things under Christ. And we, the church, are the fullness of Him in this world. The third movement that we want to see here is, I'm calling it construction. It's the building of the church in verses 19 to 22. Consequently, in light of everything I just said, that you were far away, now you've been brought near, you have been excluded, and now you've been made citizens, now you are part of this family together with Him. Consequently, for that reason, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of His household. In other words, you belong. God doesn't make you come to heaven and, and he kind of does it grudgingly he doesn't say well yeah i guess i'll let you in he chose you he did everything to pay for your sin to take you from death to life dead people don't choose god he gave you life the same as he did with lazarus you didn't offer him anything in fact, if you try to offer him something, you're insulting him. That's like telling your mom you want to pay her for that Christmas present she gave you. What an insult. Honey, will, will you do me the honor of becoming my wife? Here's this ring. Oh, great. How much do I owe you for that? I mean, that, that's what we try to do to God when, when we're offering our best, which really is like filthy rags anyway. 
How small would God have to be to be impressed by my best efforts? But instead, God chose us. He chose us in Christ. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Not only are you part of the nation, you're actually part of the family. You're also members of his household. And this household, then, he says in verse 20, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, we might overlook that. What he's saying here to the Gentile believers primarily is that everything that was true for Israel, that's still true. That's the foundation of where we're going with the church. The law of God, the commands that God gave, the understanding and the challenges of the prophets calling us to surrender to God with more than religion, but with our whole lives, that's the foundation of what's going on here. But they're they're part of the foundation. In fact, he's, he's actually trying to, to see this through the lens of the cornerstone. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In other words, the apostles and prophets hold together in Christ. Everything that they said in, in the Old Testament, in the ancient days, hinges on Messiah. Jesus Christ is the focus. In him, verse 21, the whole building, that is the church, all of us together, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. There's that temple language. The temple was the hub of Ephesus, this pagan temple that led them away from God. The Jewish temple had become apostate. It was supposed to be the place that God was on display, but Jesus said, you've turned my, my father's house into a den of robbers. The temple did not serve its purpose. The temple of Artemis was, was hostile to God. It was an enemy of God. And even God's own people had become his enemies and relying on religion rather than him. And Paul says, listen, all of that stuff, that means nothing. I'm sure that in Paul's mind, he's, he's rolling back through the things that Jesus said about the temple when he said, I'll destroy this temple and raise it up in three days, speaking of his own body. And he offended everyone as he was standing there looking at the beauty of this big building. But the building itself was never the point. It wasn't the point in the Old Testament. It was the place where God's glory was displayed. Now, he's saying, this glory is displayed in the church. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too, you Gentiles, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. All of us together built into this church. Notice this, God chooses varied stones to build his temple. God chooses varied stones to build his temple. Remember in Genesis 11, we were talking about they were building this tower and, and it specifies in there. It's not an accident that God chooses to say there. They didn't use stones. They used bricks and mortar. Bricks that they made. 
that they shaped to fit together the way they wanted them to shape, to fit. When God in Exodus called Moses and the people to build the altar, and every time they would build a memorial, God specifically instructed them. Now, God was not against human craftsmanship. He gave them very specific instructions, and he used very skilled laborers to put together his tabernacle. But with the altar, he said, use stones that are uncut, nothing shaped by your hand. The moment you cut the stone, the moment you shape it, you defile it. This is my altar. You use stones that I shaped. Now, if you've ever gone along and collected stones that God shaped, you notice they are all different shapes and different colors and different makeups. And that is exactly the point. God is building one temple with all of us lumpy rocks. Because that's what he chooses. And he says, that's beautiful. The way I made you, not the uniformity that somebody else wants to press you into so you fit into that mold and you look just like everybody else. No, but the way I made you used for my purposes. God chooses varied stones to build His temple. Notice also, the house of God is built on one ultimate foundation, Christ. The house of God is built on one ultimate foundation, Christ. Elsewhere, when Paul talks about foundation, he specifies, I laid a foundation, but it really wasn't I. Nobody can lay any foundation except for what, what is already laid, the foundation of Christ. So the apostles and the prophets, they're the, they're the foundation, but really they're on the foundation of Christ. He's the chief cornerstone. Everything hangs together in Him. The house of God is built on one foundation, Christ. So if you and I are built together as a bunch of oddly shaped stones with different colors, some softer, some harder, depending on how God has made us, but God intends for us to be built together into His temple, and we're built on the foundation of Christ, it is that foundation that unifies us. It's not our shape. It's not that we all look alike or, 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 or we fit together naturally. Sometimes God's got to do some strange things to get us to fit together. But we are on one foundation. You can't build off over here. That was one of my big fears when we started Real Life Community Church. Never, ever wanted to be or be perceived as some rogue group of Christians who didn't get along with everybody else. We are not ever to be the mavericks out here away from the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And sometimes we have to stand apart from those who call themselves the body of Christ but don't live by the word or don't represent him. But we in Christ are on one foundation. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. This is where we stand in him. <clears throat> the house of God is built on one ultimate foundation. <clears throat> that foundation is Christ. Notice also, God's purpose for His church is the display of His glory. 
God's purpose for his church is the display of his glory. Theologians can debate meanings of the temple and whether the church and Israel are connected in a variety of different ways. But ultimately what we see throughout the scripture always is this continuation of temple language. Look at the book of Hebrews sometimes. And, and the description of the tabernacle, the temple, and the sacrifices all culminating in Christ. That Jesus is our high priest. And the picture of the temple that is used there. It's not by accident. God's not throwing this stuff away. What he's saying is, what the temple was always designed to do is now the function of the church. See, in the temple, they would have this outer court where the people would gather and they'd bring their sacrifices. And, and then there was the holy place that, that the general populace couldn't get into, but, but the priests and the workers would go in, into here. And then there was the holiest place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. And only the high priest could enter. And only once a year. Once. For the atonement of sins for the nation. And only after sacrificing for his own sins. So that God could forgive him. Then he could come in. And make atonement for the people's sins. And if he didn't do it right. He died. So they eventually... <laughs> They tied a rope to his foot so they could drag him out in case the priest would sin and die in God's presence. Why? Because in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle and later in the temple, is where the Shekinah glory was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant rested. And God would manifest himself. He would show up and be present in this most holy place. The temple, the tabernacle, was designed to display God's glory. That's what the church is for. We are here, built together. You can't do this individually. Not in its fullest sense. You're just a rock. But as living stones built together into this building, this temple, where God shows up and His glory is displayed, we find our purpose God's purpose for His church is the display of His glory. And as we see throughout this text, our core reality, the glory of God is displayed in the unity of His people in Christ. Now, <clears throat> for the sake of time, I'm not going to say everything I would like to say here, but after seeing Paul's three movements here, it's important for us to talk about our communion in Christ, what we share together. <clears throat> Excuse me. First, though in this world we have real differences, in Christ we have true unity. In this world we have real differences, but in Christ we have true unity. Just turn back a couple of pages, if you're in Ephesians, turn back a couple of pages to, to Galatians chapter 3. at the end of Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia. He says this, verses 26 to 29. Not the end of the letter, the end of the chapter. Chapter 3, 26 to 29. So in Christ Jesus, 
You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Though in this world we have real differences, in Christ we have true unity. We look different. We're shaped different. Just a bunch of lumpy rocks. But God joins us together to display His glory through the unity of His people in Christ. Notice also, no matter who we are, the gospel is the great equalizer. The gospel is the great equalizer. Toward the end of the New Testament, we see the book of James And in James chapter 2, we see a passage where James, the brother of Christ, specifically condemns partiality. There are so many scriptures throughout the Old Testament and the New talking about partiality, bigotry, giving special favors to rich or poor, to foreigner or citizen. God condemned that even in Israel. Verses 8 through 10 of James 2, he writes, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. There is no room in the church for bigotry, for partiality. God specifies that in a number of ways. And one of the things that he tells Moses to tell the people in the law is that you can't give special privilege to poor people either. When you show up in court and there is a decision to be made, the rich person cannot have advantage over the poor person, but neither can the poor person have advantage over the rich. Justice must be impartial. In Christ, our treatment of others, our affection for others, must be impartial. No matter who we are, the gospel is the great equalizer. We are all dead in sin. But when we receive Christ by faith, we are made alive through His cross. Last point here, those who are in Christ, are members of one another. Those who are in Christ are members of one another. I'm going to go ahead and have you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you're in Ephesians, you're going back to the left. If you get to Acts and Romans, you went a little too far. 1 Corinthians Chapter 12. I'd love to read the whole thing. If I do that, you'll get annoyed. Chapter 12, verses 4 through 6. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same 
God at work. Jump down to verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. We were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. In Ephesians 4, we see Paul continuing his theme. Don't have to turn there right now. Instead, turn back to uh, just a page to uh, 1 Corinthians 10. But when we get to Ephesians 4, we're going to see this theme developed again. That there are many gifts that God gives to the church. But these gifts are for the building up of the church. So that as we grow, as we grow in doctrine, when we diligently study and learn God's word and what that means in our lives, then we grow together. The closer we get to him who is our head, the closer we get to one another. There is a unity when we follow him. 1 Corinthians 10, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 16. Yeah, we'll just stay there. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, they're dealing with divisions and jealousies and infighting and so on. And he says, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, is referencing here the Lord's Supper, what we call the remembrance celebration very often. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the, the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, one bread, even though it's broken up into pieces, it's one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. In other words, if we're partaking of Christ, it's the same Christ. If we are reconciled to God, it's by the same grace through Christ, by the same Spirit. There is no place for division. With these things in mind, may we together reflect the reality of Christ through our relationships with one another as He builds us together into His own people in which our unity displays His glory for all to see. Let's pray together.